ni mucho risa. Es Pancho Villa sin camisa. Y se van los carancistas porque vienen los vistas. Necesito bicicleta para hacer la caminata al lugar donde mando la convención zapata. La cucaracha, la cucaracha ya no puede caminar porque no tiene, porque le falta marihuana por fumar. La cucaracha, la cucaracha ya no puede caminar porque no tiene, porque le falta marihuana por fumar. Dame mucho risa, es Pancho Villa sin camisa. Y se van los carancistas, porque vienen los vistas. Necesito bicicleta, para hacer la caminata. Al lugar donde mando, la convención zapata. La cucaracha, la cucaracha, ya no puede caminar, porque no tiene, porque le falta. Marihuana por fumar, la cucaracha, la cucaracha, ya no puede caminar, porque no tiene, porque le falta. Marihuana por fumar, 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 marihuana por fumar. Okay, opening up once again on uh, the Counter Vortex podcast with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, doing a little cut on the guitar. Uh, Again, I don't think there's any copyright infringement here because I believe that that classic anthem of the Mexican Revolution is part of the intellectual commons of the human race. La Cucaracha, uh, with its uh, great invocation of um, Marihuana Por Fumar. Uh, basically, what that song was about was Pancho Villa's troops when they were marching across the desert during the, the Mexican Revolution uh, adopted this as kind of a protest song, basically saying they weren't going to march unless they had some marijuana to smoke while they were marching. And uh, that is very much the way I feel whenever I have deadlines to meet or I have to clean my apartment. So I can totally relate to the to the Viistas. And that's a really um, uh, very historically didactic song with references to Emiliano Zapata and Venustiano Carranza and uh, other figures and events of the Mexican Revolution, despite being a, um, uh, a very, uh, you know, playful and tongue-in-cheek kind of song. And uh, the reason we're uh, opening with it today is because uh, we're going to talk about... Um, 
cannabis. Is that okay? Well, for starters, I want to talk about, um, just by way of introduction, is, uh, you know, my involvement in the issue and the fact that, uh, you know, obviously people who have been listening to this podcast and following my work on my website, countervortex.org, are aware that, uh, you know, I am very, very deeply concerned with general issues of war and peace, ecological survival, cultural survival for indigenous peoples. I'm not a one-issue kind of guy by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I believe in um, uh, getting the big picture and making the connections, as they used to say, or um, intersectionality, as they put it today. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, almost entirely throughout my adult life, writing about cannabis has been my bread and butter. It's how I've paid the rent. I was um, news editor at High Times Magazine back in the 1990s. And I have continued to write for them since then uh, as a columnist and later as a blogger, as it were. And uh, over the past year, there have been um, editorial changes at uh, High Times, and uh, which resulted in me jumping ship to Cannabis Now magazine out of uh, Berkeley, California, which is my, uh, my, current, uh, my current gig, my current bread and butter. And I'm uh, very happy writing for them. And they do a lot of uh, very worthwhile journalism, and I'm very happy to be uh, contributing to that publication. So um, I just want to make clear here that, uh, all right, writing about cannabis is my bread and butter, but it's also an issue which is very close to my heart. Just like questions of war and peace, just like questions of ecological survival for planet Earth, just like questions of cultural survival for indigenous peoples, The liberation of the cannabis plant is a not only legitimate, but urgent and pressing issue of human rights and racial justice. Even now, after all of the progress in liberalization in this country over over the past generation, where uh, now nine states have legalized and something like 30 states have medical marijuana laws, even now, there are still something like 100,000 people behind bars in the United States, in either federal, state, or local prisons or jails, for using an herb which not only is essentially harmless, but as science and industry are increasingly coming to recognize, is beneficial. So this is extremely out of whack, extremely oppressive. And of course, with those um, approximately 100,000 behind bars in the United States of America, there's the usual, um, you know, racial disparity that goes along with that. And that's just the United States that we're talking about. There are some countries around the world, of course, which have got more liberal cannabis laws and policies in the United States, but there are also many which have much more harsh and oppressive ones. There are still countries on planet Earth where you can be executed for cannabis possession in sufficient quantities, mostly in, um, in Asia. We'll have more to say about this later on over the course of this rant. But I will also point out that even here in the United States, little known fact, there is actually a law on the books which imposes the death penalty for possession of marijuana in sufficient quantities. Now, the sufficient quantities are very, very large, 60,000 kilos. 
but nonetheless, this is the um, the so-called Drug Kingpin Act, which was signed by President Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Actually imposes the death penalty for, well, trafficking, quote-unquote, uh, cannabis in um, sufficient quantities. And this, unfortunately, may not be all that academic. Just a few months ago, uh, the now um, outgoing federal attorney general, Jeff Sessions, actually instructed his prosecutors around the country to start seeking the death penalty in drug cases, which um, sparked a, a wave of paranoia about, uh, you know, uh, people who are um, uh, now legitimate captains of industry in states such as California and Colorado, which have legalized, possibly being, uh, you know, targeted under this, um, under, under this drug kingpin law by the Federal Justice Department. And uh, we are actually talking about quantities approaching 60,000 kilos um, in, uh, you know, uh, the cases of uh, literally, uh, you know, um, agribusiness sector emerging in California around legal cannabis over the over the past couple of years. So um, we'll have more to say about this. But um, the past year, 2018, saw tremendous progress on the world stage towards lifting the legal pressure on the cannabis plant. But, you know, part of the point I'm going to make is that this progress actually opens up a whole new set of contradictions. And that doesn't mean that it's not progress, okay? <laughs> it is progress. But uh, if we have a, um, a dialectical understanding of how the historical process unfolds, we will understand that every progress also opens new contradictions which need to be resolved. And the liberation of the cannabis plant is no exception. So, of course, the big news from the year 2018 was Canada. Uh, legalization of, um, of cannabis, which was approved by the Canadian Parliament and, um, and by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, actually took effect in October of the past year. Uh, but before we talk about, um, about Canada and some of the other major economies and industrial powers which have opened space for cannabis over the past year. I want to talk first about some of the um, some of the countries in places on planet Earth where the cannabis stigma is most deeply entrenched and where the uh, so-called, you know, anti-drug policies have been the most harsh and oppressive and draconian, which actually saw political space and legal space opening up for cannabis over um, over the past year, over the course of 2018. Because in places such as Southeast Asia and Africa, which generally have very draconian drug laws, when there's political progress like this, uh, it, it, you can argue that it means a lot more. So um, we're going to start with um, looking at Southeast Asia, because Southeast Asia is traditionally... The, uh, the region of the planet which has got the most oppressive and draconian drug laws and where in several countries, yeah, you can still get the death penalty for possession of cannabis in sufficient quantities and quantities <laughs> far, uh, far less than, the, uh, than those stipulated by the uh, U.S. Drug Kingpin Act. So uh, we're going to start with um, 
with uh, with Thailand, which uh, interestingly has been under a military dictatorship since 2014, uh, ruled by a military junta with powers for the National Legislative Assembly severely curtailed. Uh, but nonetheless, the uh, military junta allowed the National Assembly to pass a law allowing the use, possession, cultivation, import, and export of cannabis for medicinal purposes. Now, this is particularly significant in Thailand, which has been such a rigidly closed anti-drug police state that the, that the cops on the beat are actually empowered by law to stop anybody, not just motorists, but pedestrians as well. And um, if they are suspected of being under the influence of cannabis, the police are empowered to perform a urine test on the spot. And if the test comes back positive, that is treated as possession under the law. So obviously this is utterly draconian. And in fact, the new law, unfortunately, does not change that. But uh, nonetheless, it um, does open up some legal space and does provide a, a medical defense, uh, uh, you know, before the law for, uh, for the use of marijuana. A, a small step, but a significant small step, particularly in such, uh, you know, a country like Thailand, which has been so rigidly closed on the question until now. Uh, perhaps even more significant, um, Malaysia. There was a, uh, a big outcry this past year when a, um, a man who was producing cannabis extract oil for um, medical purposes, basically for the treatment of epilepsy. Uh, we'll have more to say about this as well, but it is also now well established by science and industry that cannabis, particularly the cannabinoid CBD, is um, extremely effective in um, encountering epilepsy. And there are um, now drugs which are actually being marketed by and approved by the FDA, marketed by the pharmaceutical industry and approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which use CBD to treat otherwise untreatable severe forms of epilepsy. There was a very public-spirited guy in Malaysia by the name of Mohamed Lukman, who was producing cannabis extract oil for use by epilepsy patients, by families who have, you know, kids who are suffering from epilepsy and, you know, nothing else was uh, effective in treating it. And um, he was found out and he was busted and the death penalty was imposed. He was actually going to be executed. He was going to be hanged for helping sick children. Fortunately, the good news is that there was a, a big global outcry about this on social media and so on. And finally, uh, the Malaysian government blinked and they actually um, pledged to repeal the death penalty in Malaysia altogether. Big step in the right direction. Now, this all happened back in, I believe it was in October. And the bad news is that the government has sort of been dragging its heels since then. And, uh, you know, the legal community and, and advocates in Malaysia have been protesting that um, the legislation to repeal the death penalty still has not been introduced. But nonetheless, the government did promise to introduce it. So hopefully in 2019, 
that's going to happen. And in any event, it looks like um, Mohamed Lukman is going to escape the gallows. He's not legally in the clear yet because the law still has not been overturned. But again, hopefully, uh, you know, there's been enough of a media spotlight on the case and the government, uh, you know, is hopefully going to be under enough pressure to follow through on its promise to repeal the death penalty that hopefully uh, Mohamed Lukman is not going to be executed. So uh, that's a good thing. And even perhaps even more significantly, or uh, certainly more surprisingly, if not more significantly, Malaysian lawmakers have actually broached in the wake of this whole brouhaha, have actually broached legalizing medical marijuana. Another Asian country, which uh, has got extremely draconian uh, cannabis laws, I don't believe they actually impose the death penalty, but nonetheless, they've made a big to-do ever since they were a military dictatorship back um, a couple of generations ago, uh, you know, that they are a drug-free society, quote-unquote, and that they don't tolerate anybody getting high, is um, South Korea. South Korea also passed a law this past year, uh, a very, very limited medical marijuana law. I would argue that it's not exactly a medical marijuana law. We'll have more to say later on about the definition of what is and what isn't marijuana and why the very term marijuana is increasingly perceived as problematic. But um, the law does not actually uh, open any legal space for the use of herbaceous cannabis, that is, for the dried flower, which can actually be smoked or vaporized, but um, does allow the importation of um, pharmaceutical products which are based on CBD or other cannabinoids, such as Epidiolex, the same one which was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration earlier this year as well. So um, it's a very narrow and limited law, but still, in a place um, like South Korea, it's extremely significant. By the way, just as a little aside here, there's um, a, a lot of media, or rather I should say um, social media, internet misinformation going around about how cannabis is legal in North Korea. Ay, 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 ay. I don't know if you've seen this, you know, all of these um, uh, fly-by-night pseudo-news websites have been um, posting stories, just as basic clickbait about how, uh, you know, cannabis is legal in North Korea. And I hope I don't have to elaborate on the fact that that's all complete nonsense. There may not be any actual law on the books against cannabis use in North Korea, but um, that's only because there isn't any cannabis there. <laughs> and they certainly do impose um, the death penalty for, um, for use of illegal drugs. So don't believe the hype. Cannabis is absolutely not legal in North Korea. If you go to North Korea to, uh, you know, get high, you're guaranteeing yourself a really, really bad trip, to say the least. We'll say no more about that. Uh, let's move on now to um, to Africa, where, uh, again, after a big activist campaign, South Africa, by a ruling of its Supreme Court last year, instated decriminalization of cannabis. Now, the distinction between legalization and decriminalization, generally, is that, uh, you know, under legalization, there are um, provisions for cultivation and sale, uh, a cannabis industry, so to speak, whereas under decriminalization, uh, the uh, criminal penalties are removed for personal possession. That's basically what decriminalization means. For instance, we have decriminalization here in New York State 
from where I am ranting at this very moment. We've had it since 1976. Uh, but we do not have legalization. Now, our um, governor, Andrew Cuomo, uh, says that he's um, actually pledged, again, under a lot of activist pressure, having been completely intransigent on the, on the question for the long years of his political career, Finally, Andrew Cuomo, over the course of the past year, said that he supports cannabis legalization, and hopefully we are going to get cannabis legalization here in New York State in 2019. And it's kind of a, um, a race which is on as to whether New York or New Jersey is going to be uh, the one to do it first. Anyway, but getting back, to, uh, getting back to Africa. So by a ruling of the South African Supreme Court, uh, cannabis was decriminalized in, um, in, in that country last year. And again, this was due to, a, um, to an activist campaign. Now here in New York State, the activist pressure has basically had to do with the, uh, the racial disparity in cannabis busts and, uh, you know, the whole prison industrial complex. Um, and um, uh, depriving the police of uh, yet another excuse to be arresting brown-skinned people. Uh, in South Africa, it had to do with a, um, a protest movement by farmers. Uh, South Africa has been, uh, you know, their economy has been, uh, particularly their agricultural economy, has been hit very hard by, uh, by globalization. And um, growers of uh, traditional crops have been... Um, in addition to clamoring for land reform, for agrarian reform, and undoing some of the uh, legacy of apartheid, where uh, you know a lot of the best lands in the country are in the hands of uh, you know big white farmers, you know small black farmers have actually been uh, calling for legalizing cannabis as a crop to be uh, legally cultivated, and it was due it was under this activist pressure from below that uh, South Africa's judiciary has now, at least they've opened the door a little bit by decriminalizing. Maybe we will actually see a general legalization in South Africa in the coming year or two. Lesser noted, because it's a much smaller country, but um, South Africa's landlocked neighbor, Lesotho, or as I believe it is actually pronounced Lesotho, uh, issued its first um, licenses for legal cultivation of uh, medical marijuana for export to the uh, to the global market in places like Canada. So um, now Lesotho has actually been a major cultivator, even though it's a very small country. It's uh, been a, a major cultivator of um, of cannabis for the past several years, and it's been argued that there is a kind of um, de facto legalization which has been in place in uh, in Lesotho, where the authorities. Uh, of the kingdom, it's actually a kingdom, uh, have sort of been turning a blind eye to widespread uh, cultivation because the economy is in such bad shape. Again, due to, you know, the traditional um, agribusiness or agriculture sector being, uh, you know, undermined by, uh, by globalization, the uh, traditional agricultural economy, traditional farming economy has been in such bad shape that the government is sort of turning a blind eye to... Um, to cannabis cultivation because they understand that it's kind of a political and economic safety valve. Well, now they're actually moving from a, a de facto legalization to at least tentatively to a, um, a de jure legalization. And they've actually issued the first, um, the first licenses for, uh, for legal cultivation in Lesotho. Perhaps more surprisingly, Zimbabwe 
passed a medical marijuana law. Now, Zimbabwe is, you know, traditionally been one of the most rigidly closed societies in um, in Africa under the long rule of um, the strongman Robert Mugabe. Well, um, he was ousted this past year, and uh, the democratic transition which is underway in Zimbabwe is still, shall we say, shaky and tentative. And as a testament to this, I'll just point out that the uh, the medical marijuana law was not actually passed by uh, by the country's parliament, which still seems to have um, pretty circumscribed powers. But it was just sort of issued by fiat by the um, by the executive. Um, nonetheless, the executive was doing the right thing, and uh, there actually um, is legal space opening up for cannabis, even in what has traditionally been, you know, a rigidly controlled authoritarian society in Zimbabwe. So, uh, again, move in the right direction in a place where you wouldn't really expect it. Let's take a look at the Middle East. The, uh, you know, again, this is, again, a little bit counterintuitive because um, Israel certainly has been moving in a very, very, very dangerous and ugly, and I would even argue fascistic direction, under the uh, the government of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. But um, the Israeli Knesset actually did pass, with Netanyahu's approval, a, um, a limited cannabis decriminalization law this year. And by, by limited, I mean basically that it's set to sunset in three years. It's kind of viewed as an experiment. So they're going to, uh, you know, see how it's going, and then they'll either renew it or they won't in three years. Um in Lebanon, well, Lebanon is a very interesting case. They didn't actually pass a um, a medical marijuana law, but one was introduced in Parliament in Lebanon uh, this past year. And uh, once again, you know, Lebanon has been a major producer of, uh, you know, contraband cannabis. Even though it's a small country, it's one of the, the planet's top producers of hashish, particularly in the Beka Valley. And there have been uh, eradication campaigns, you know, over over the years to try to wipe out the cannabis crops in the Beka Valley. And there's been a lot of protest and even armed resistance by the cannabis growers there in response to this. So, uh, again, finally, due to some pressure from below, the uh, political establishment in Lebanon has actually taken up the issue of legalization to try to... Um, actually daylight the industry in the Beka Valley instead of engaging in these absolutely fruitless, uh, you know, efforts to eradicate it. And, you know, every time they uh, eradicate the crop, they, they merely, uh, you know, the, the farmers merely replant it and uh, the cannabis economy there continues. And, you know, it's been a lot of, as I say, a lot of protest and even armed resistance from the growers in the Beka Valley. So finally, some politicians in Lebanon have finally, uh, you know, seen the light and have undertaken a, an initiative to, um, to legalize the industry. Similarly, there's been such an initiative in Morocco. Morocco is the largest producer on earth of contraband cannabis. And finally, I don't believe that the, uh, the law was actually introduced, but uh, lawmakers in Morocco are now um, drafting legislation to, uh, to, to at least legalize cultivation of medical marijuana. So, um, step in the right direction. All right, now let's take a look at um, some of the more major players on the world stage, G8 members and all that, and uh, quite significantly, members of the British Commonwealth, or what's now just known as the Commonwealth. 
uh, five members of the uh, the Commonwealth open space for for cannabis over the course of the past year. Two of them I've already mentioned, South Africa and Lesotho. But uh, then, of course, we have Canada, most significantly Canada, a G8 member and so on, actually legalized, didn't just decriminalize, didn't just pass a medical marijuana law, which they've already had for the past, I think, 10 years. They actually legalized, which means there's actually now a booming cannabis industry in Canada. There actually already was one under the under the medical marijuana program, but uh, now it's uh, you know it's it's set to to really expand under a general legalization of what is called so-called recreational cannabis. Uh, another uh, controversial term. I'll have more to say about the uh, the terminology question later on in this discussion. Now, since uh, legalization actually took effect in Canada in mid-October, it's been something of a bumpy start. Basically, uh, the, the, the producers and the government have had uh, a big challenge in meeting demand. Demand has rapidly outstripped um, the supply. And also there's been uh, a challenge in, in negotiating the the patchwork of provincial policies, because every province and territory in Canada is uh, sort of been left to its own to set its own policy in terms of whether the stuff will be available only through the provincial government or also through um, private outlets, whether it will be available through brick and mortar retail outlets or only online. And then you've also got the whole very interesting question of First Nations, the uh, you know indigenous inhabitants of Canada. Um, who were completely written out of the law. The law does not uh, address them and their legal status whatsoever. So, uh, you know, they are saying that they, uh, you know, have the sovereign right to um, set uh, cannabis policy within their own reserves, and uh, the federal government and the provincial governments are um, <clears throat> a little bit worried about what that's going to mean. <laughs> so it's going to be very interesting to watch how um, this whole process continues to unfold in Canada over the course of the coming years. But uh, nonetheless, definitely history was made by Canada. Then the United Kingdom itself, again, following a pressure campaign, basically by the mothers of children who were suffering from severe and intractable forms of epilepsy, the British Home Office actually issued a fiat legalizing medical marijuana. And there was some ambiguity at first as to whether it was going to um, include herbaceous cannabis or only extracts. It actually looks like it does include herbaceous cannabis. And what's most significant about it is that they actually rescheduled cannabis. They took it out of Schedule 1. To briefly explain, there is a treaty called the Single Convention. It was basically the, uh, the brainchild of... Um, of Harry Anslinger, the um, crusading zealot who was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in the United States, was responsible for all of the racist, hysterical reefer madness of, um, of that era, which succeeded in finally getting cannabis um, outlawed in the United States beginning in 1937. And then in, um, in the 1960s, before he retired... He basically uh, took his campaign global and brought pressure to bear on the United Nations to adapt the Single Convention Treaty, which um, establishes uh, what are supposed to be, uh, you know, um, uniform guidelines for drug laws by all countries on Earth. And under the Single Convention Treaty, cannabis is actually in Schedule 1, along with 
heroin for drugs which have no medical application whatsoever and have a high potential for abuse. Now, this is completely ridiculous, utterly, utterly outdated by the science, but it continues to be the law here in the United States. And those uh, standards were adopted by the Controlled Substances Act of, I believe it was 1970, here in the United States. And also is the, uh, the standard in most countries around the world, which are signatories to the single convention. But now the United Kingdom is actually not. The United Kingdom is now one of a few countries around the world, just a handful of countries around the world, which um, for their you know own internal policing have actually taken cannabis out of Schedule 1 and put it in Schedule 2, along with cocaine and morphine for drugs which actually do have a legitimate medical application. Now, us advocates of, uh, you know, maximum freedom for the cannabis plant, we want to see cannabis taken out of the schedule system entirely. We don't think that you should need a prescription to get cannabis. It should be over the counter, so to speak, freely available. But uh, still, taking it out of schedule one and putting it in schedule two is um, nonetheless a very significant step, especially from the United Kingdom, you know, a major world power. Uh, again, very significant. New Zealand also passed a medical marijuana law last year. And again, under pressure from the, uh, the Green Party. And I should point out that the Green Party in New Zealand is actually a significant political party and has actually got good politics. In contrast to the Green Party here in the United States, which is a pathetic joke, but that's another conversation. So uh, under pressure from the Green Party in New Zealand, the, uh, the government actually did pass a medical marijuana law. And again, under pressure from the Green Party, the government is now committed to holding a, um, a referendum on uh, general legalization of you know, so-called recreational, quote-unquote, cannabis in the year 2020. Did I say five? It's actually six members of the Commonwealth, um, which opened legal space for cannabis last year. Lesotho, South Africa, United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada, one more, Jamaica. Forgot Jamaica. Don't want to leave out Jamaica. Again, traditionally a, uh, a major producer of contraband cannabis. And uh, again, their traditional economy, uh, you know, their traditional agriculture sector, which has been centered on the crop of sugar, has been very, very badly hit by globalization and particularly by the rise of artificial sweeteners and high fructose corn syrup. Um, and they, uh, again, mostly under pressure from farmers last year issued the first um, export licenses for medical marijuana for, uh, you know, export to uh, mostly export of extracts and so on to countries such as Canada. And there was also, I'm not sure if it was last year or the year before, but there was also a, a medical marijuana law which was passed in Jamaica, which interestingly also contains provisions for the um, sacramental or spiritual use of cannabis. I believe the only country on earth which has done so, which of course was for the, um, the Rastafarians. So um, very significant. Then Latin America, there's been, um, actually not last year, but um, over the course of the past few years, has been big progress for, uh, for medical marijuana and for decriminalization in several countries in, um, in South America. Um, and I'm just going to mention Peru. It didn't actually happen last year, but the year before, 2017, Peru finally passed a medical marijuana law. And um, it actually happened while I was there covering it for, uh, for High Times magazine. So um, I feel like I got to witness uh, history in Peru, and I actually got to um, interview Ana Alvarez, who is a, um, a mother of a, a young kid who is suffering 
from a severe form of epilepsy. And uh, she kind of became the, uh, the poster woman for medical marijuana in Peru. She was part of a collective called Buscando Esperanza, or Seeking Hope, which was uh, producing CBD extract oil, a collective of mothers, basically, producing it for their kids who were suffering from epilepsy and other ailments, which only respond to that treatment. And they were uh, raided by the police. And uh, Ana Alvarez, I believe, is still facing criminal charges. And even now that the, that the law has been changed, she still... I believe has a uh, you know a criminal process opened against her and may still see prison time because I'm not sure that the law is retroactive. So I think that probably she's become enough of a cause celeb, as it were, that she's not going to go to jail. But nonetheless, I uh, you know take my um, my hat off to uh, Tana Alvarez, who um, really uh, you know she personifies mother courage as far as I'm concerned. She really put her own freedom on the line for her kid and for uh, the right to medicinal use of cannabis and succeeded in getting the law changed in Peru. But like I say, for those of us who have got a, uh, you know, a critique of the capitalist system, we understand that, uh, you know, all of this progress, and it is progress, I'm not equivocating about the fact that it's progress, also opens up new contradictions which we are going to have to contend with. And, you know, I mean, the most obvious is, you know, I, I talked about Pancho Villa and the Rastafarians, you know, obviously cannabis is traditionally, partially because of its outlaw status, has been associated with revolutionary politics, you know, and certainly, uh, you know, me getting uh, politicized and becoming a, um, a political radical and a hippie and an anarchist uh, in my adolescence also went right along with, you know, becoming a, a cannabis user, which I remain to this day. But now, with cannabis being mainstreamed and normalized and the stigma eroding, all of which are good things, which we advocates have been um, calling for for all of these years, the traditional association of cannabis with radical politics, and particularly with anti-capitalism, is also eroding. And uh, you have, not surprisingly at all, the emergence of corporate cannabis, or as it's been called, Big Bud. And herbaceous cannabis now, even herbaceous cannabis in California and in Canada, uh, you know, actually becoming a uh, major, you know, agribusiness commodity. And certainly, uh, you know, cannabinoids such as um, CBD, particularly CBD, have been uh, incorporated into the pharmaceutical industry now, particularly, you know, GW Pharmaceuticals of, um, of Great Britain has, um, you know, been marketing Epidiolex uh, and, uh, you know, as a patented pharmaceutical product. For starters, it opens up the whole question of whether cannabis is a part of the uh, genetic and intellectual commons of the human race or whether it can be subject to being patented and privatized. And certainly with the, uh, the medical marijuana law, which was just um, passed in Thailand, even though cannabis is completely illegal there, or has been until just this past year when finally a little bit of legal space opened up for it, there is also a, um, a long tradition of um, use of cannabis in traditional Thai medicine. And uh, practitioners of a traditional herbal medicine in Thailand have expressed concern since passage of the medical marijuana law 
that, uh, you know, these um, big uh, Canadian companies or, you know, big foreign corporations are going to come in and start to, um, to privatize the, um, the ancient land races, as they're called, which have been cultivated in Thailand for hundreds and possibly even thousands of years. Land races are um, crops which are indigenous to a particular locale, as opposed to crops which have been, uh, you know, created by human meddling, whether through um, uh, hybridization or um, actual, you know, genetic engineering more recently. This is really the um, genetic heritage of humanity, and particularly, you know, the genetic heritage of indigenous peoples and peasant communities and practitioners of herbal medicine who have been um, keeping these ancient varieties alive, you know, in vivo, so to speak, for, um, for hundreds and even thousands of years. This is not just an issue which concerns cannabis. This is also an issue which concerns corn and potatoes and just about every crop on earth, but, you know, which have long since, you know, um, uh, been, been privatized. And this is a whole other conversation. Maybe, you know, our next rant will be about that. But, um, there is now fear that with the legal space, which is opening up for cannabis under, you know, the system of global corporate capitalism, that these um, ancient land races in places like uh, like Thailand, where particularly some of the um, the sativas, Southeast Asia has been uh, the region of, of the earth where the sativa varieties have been um, have been kept alive for all of these centuries, as opposed to um, Central Asia, Afghanistan, the Hindu Kush where uh, the, uh, the indica varieties have been, um, have been cultivated since time immemorial. And, uh, you know, it's been over the course of the past couple of generations that growers in places like California and uh, the Netherlands have been, you know, hybridizing them and coming up with these so-called skunk varieties, which are mixing sativas and, um, and indicas. And, you know, they hold the competitions at the Cannabis Cup every year to, uh, you know, for the, 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 best, um, the best hybrid dyes varieties. Well, uh, again, there's been a lot of concern from the practitioners of traditional herbal medicine in Thailand that their, you know, ancient sativa land races are now going to be privatized. And in response to this, I should say, by the way, that, you know, they're actually some of the more um, progressive minded and enlightened growers in places like California and the Netherlands have actually formed a, um, what they're calling the open source seed project which is um, documenting that certain varieties have been in widespread use for uh, for so long that they um, are now a part of the uh, you know the intellectual commons of the human race and of of, of cultivators all around the world and um, cannot be privatized by agribusiness companies. So um, very very critical issue. Uh, another critical issue is uh, that you know particularly what we've seen as uh, cannabis has been legalized in California over the past couple of years now, is that the, uh, you know, the small growers in, uh, you know, the so-called Emerald Triangle, which is now the, um, the north part of the state, basically the counties of uh, Mendocino, Humboldt, and Trinity, by the narrowest definition, who have been um, producing cannabis now for, you know, going on three generations, are being increasingly pushed off the market as big agribusiness interests in the Central Valley and the Salinas Valley 
are um, starting to switch from rice to cannabis and switch from broccoli and cauliflower to cannabis. Um, and, you know, they've got, you know, huge tracts of land and, uh, you know, economies of scale. And the, uh, the small growers are increasingly being pushed from the market. And there's a big controversy now in the, uh, the new regulations, which are taking effect in California, which were supposed to have limits on the size of holdings for cannabis growers, a kind of an agrarian reform program, if you will, for the cannabis industry in California. And um, in fact, the way it's actually played itself out, there's a huge loophole in the regulations where ostensibly there is a, um, a limit of one license per license holder for a, um, a single acre under cultivation. But um, the same license holder can hold, I believe, essentially unlimited licenses if it's for under an acre, which basically means that, you know, a single license holder could get, you know, again, vast areas of land. So, um, and that, in fact, is, um, is what is happening. And perhaps, you know, most ironic and dystopian of all is that, uh, you know, the big militarized marijuana raids up in the up in the Emerald Triangle have actually continued. I mean, it's not at the absolute, you know, breakneck militarized level that it was back in the 1980s. Thank goodness, not nearly. But nonetheless, you know, these big militarized raids have actually continued because a lot of the uh, of the growers, a lot of the the small growers up in the Triangle, um, consider the um, the regulations which have been put in place and the uh, taxation, which has been put in place to be burdensome. And they have determined that, you know, it's in their economic interest not to comply and to continue to grow on the black market. And in fact, some of the, the proceeds, some of the tax revenues from the legal cannabis sector is now actually being put into, you know, a special unit of the state police to crack down on the black market sector. So this is also extremely dystopian. On the upside, people are actually grappling with this issue and, and related issues, grappling with, you know, the new contradictions which have been opened up by legalization in California. And there is now this concept of so-called cannabis equity. And it was actually Oakland which um, led the way with passing a, um, a cannabis equity ordinance which uh, basically is mandating that, uh, you know, the people who should benefit from the legal cannabis economy should be, you know, those communities which were most adversely impacted by cannabis prohibition, you know, with all of the, uh, the racial disparities, particularly in places like Oakland, that, you know, have traditionally gone along with that. So uh, under the cannabis equity program in Oakland, those communities and of course, you know, this basically means, uh, you know, East Oakland and uh, other, uh, you know, African-American and Latino areas of, um, of the city, uh, which have, uh, you know, suffered the highest rates of marijuana busts back when the stuff was illegal, uh, should now be getting priority for, uh, for cannabis businesses. And uh, again, this is a good thing. Uh, and uh, an even better thing is that after Oakland led the way, several other municipalities followed suit. And another positive development last year is that now Sacramento actually passed a, um, a cannabis equity law in stating such policies statewide. Okay, so uh, this is beginning to address some of the, uh, the contradictions which have opened up. 
But nonetheless, the contradictions are still there. And I'll also point out that, you know, okay, California has kind of got a progressive tradition. Colorado, which is also, um, you know, legalized, actually legalized before California did, um, has got more of a, you know, a freewheeling, free market, uh, you know, uh, libertarian capitalist kind of ethic. And there isn't any cannabis equity policy in Colorado. And what we've seen, particularly over the uh, the past couple of years, the Colorado is legalized now, is uh, the um, the phenomenon of cannabis gentrification, where all of this money from the cannabis industry and you know all these cannabis businesses opening up in Denver and uh, you know driving up the rents and you know bringing in uh, all of these yuppies and <laughs> forcing out low income communities. So you know the same thing which uh, you know high tech has done. In, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area and real estate is done here in New York and, you know, banking and finance is done here in New York um, and even high tech is starting to do in, in New York now. Uh, you know, cannabis has been doing in Colorado. So uh, not a good thing. Now, uh, you know, back in 2016, when Proposition 64, the referendum that, that legalized cannabis in California, back when it was pending, there was this phenomenon of so-called stoners against legalization as they were Riley called, uh, you know, cannabis users and cannabis cultivators uh, who were actually opposed to legalization because they foresaw that, uh, you know, it was going to mean, you know, the emergence of the phenomenon of uh, corporate cannabis and cannabis agribusiness and cannabis gentrification, and it was going to ultimately be bad news for the uh, traditional small growers up in the Emerald Triangle. And in fact, uh, you know, my uh, friend and comrade, Dennis Perone, who died last year, who was a really heroic character, who was um, pretty much responsible for the first significant opening of, um, you know, the first significant uh, crack in the wall, the edifice of cannabis prohibition in this country way back in 1994 with the passage of uh, Proposition 2015 which made uh, medical marijuana legal in the state of California. I mean, Dennis was really responsible for that. He was uh, kind of a uh, crusading figure, particularly in the gay community in San Francisco. And uh, during, you know, the AIDS crisis of the, uh, of the 1980s, um, he uh, emerged as, a, um, as an open, not only advocate of providing medical marijuana for AIDS patients, and you know, often su- they were suffering from the wasting syndrome, and smoking cannabis was the, was literally critical to their survival. The only way that they could keep down food. Uh, he, and he became not only a crusading advocate, but he actually, you know, um, was providing cannabis in defiance of the law. And, you know, faced big legal problems over this and, you know, actually spent time in jail over this. So uh, really a, um, a heroic figure and uh, somebody who I'm really honored to have known. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, I disagreed with him <laughs> in 2016 when he kind of like went on the hustings against Proposition 64 and, uh, and was arguing that uh, people should vote against it because, you know, he foresaw that, you know, it was going to have this dystopian side. Now, I'm actually, you know, with the hindsight three years later, I actually have more sympathy for his position than I did at the time, <laughs> because I've actually seen that, you know, much of what he was warning against has actually come to pass. But, you know, I think when uh, when push comes to shove, you know, I, I'm not registered to vote in California. I was actually um, 
you know, spent a lot of time out there covering the cannabis industry and so on. But um, I'm registered to vote here in New York. But I said at the time that, uh, you know, if I was registered to vote in California, I would have voted for, uh, for Prop 64, despite my misgivings. You know, that uh, everything, as long as we're living under capitalism, you know, everything is a trade-off. You know, you've got to weigh the advantages and the disadvantages. And that ultimately, cannabis prohibition was so oppressive that it had to be done away with. It had to not, it hasn't been completely done away with. I understand that. There's still a black market, right? And I'll point out that um, in the states that have legalized, there are still, you know, restrictions on the books in many states in terms of, um, you know, public use and so on. So, um, and, you know, use while driving and so on. So, uh, while overall cannabis arrests have gone down dramatically in those states, for those cannabis arrests which are continuing to, uh, to take place, guess what? The racial disparity is still absolutely intact. And uh, here in New York City, under the um, administration of Bill de Blasio, he has actually taken the correct move, and the uh, district attorneys, both in New York and Brooklyn, uh, I'm sorry, New York County, that is to say Manhattan and Brooklyn, have, um, have, have taken the right move now of um, not arresting for cannabis possession. And this is, you know, long overdue. Because New York, despite its liberal reputation, you know, under uh, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, was, uh, you know, the cannabis arrest capital of the United States. So, um, again, this is a big step in the right direction. But, again, there, there was a loophole in the law, which is that um, the cops could still arrest for public use. And, uh, again, even though um, with, with the new policy, cannabis arrest dramatically declined in New York City, which is a good thing. The racial disparity in the arrest which continued to take place was still absolutely intact, and that is not a good thing. That's a really, really bad thing. Now, uh, they've just broadened the policy to, um, to actually preclude making arrests, just issuing tickets, even for public use. So that's a good thing, but there are still certain loopholes, such as, you know, using it in a manner which creates a, a nuisance, etc., so uh, there are still going to be some circumstances under which the police can make arrests. So we're going to see if under the new policy, the now broadened policy, another advance, which took place in 2018, uh, arrests are going to continue to decline in New York City. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, if the racial disparity will actually begin to decline as well. That would be good. So, yeah, you know, I disagreed with, with Dennis Perone. I think that, you know, prohibition was, um, was so oppressive that it was necessary to, um, to crack it open. And uh, with the understanding that cracking it open was not going to be a panacea. There's no such thing as a panacea. And that, you know, cracking open prohibition was going to mean, you know, that there were going to be new contradictions and continued old contradictions, such as the racial disparity, which were going to either, you know, open up or, you know, continue to accrue. That was going to have to be something that we would have to continue to be vigilant about and continue to, uh, you know, to struggle over once cannabis was legalized. 
So that was my position, and it's still my position, even though, you know, like I say, I have a little bit more sympathy for, uh, you know, Dennis Perone's position, the so-called stoners against legalization <laughs> position now than I did at the time. Now that I see many of their fears have been vindicated, nonetheless, on balance, I still think that it was uh, the right thing to legalize. And it just means that, you know, um, eternal vigilance is the cost of freedom and that we have to, um, we have to continue to fight. And a part of continuing to a fight means, uh, and this is where, you know, I think legalization really, really has been in advance and which we really have to, um, to build upon, is um, fighting against the stigma which still attaches to the cannabis plant. Going all the way back to Harry Anslinger in the 1930s and Reefer Madness and, you know, the utterly, blatantly, hideously racist propaganda which was used at the time to... Um, to pass the Cannabis Tax Act or the Marijuana Tax Act in, uh, in 1937, which, uh, which, which banned cannabis in the United States. Uh, not only, you know, the absolutely ludicrous stories about how smoking turns you into axe murderers, but also the really, really hideous propaganda about how it was being used by, uh, you know, racially inferior sectors of the, uh, the citizenry. And, that's verbatim, okay? That's not me paraphrasing. That's verbatim. People from a, you know, a, a low racial stock, basically meaning African-Americans and Mexican immigrants, for the most part, where uh, opium was concerned with passage of the Boggs Act back in 1914, which outlawed opiates in this country. The same kind of hideous rhetoric was uh, used against Chinese immigrants. And this has got everything to do all of these years later, okay? With all of the progress which has been made in this country, you know, there are still states like, um, like Louisiana, which have got absolutely draconian marijuana laws. And uh, there's still, as I say, 100,000 people behind bars in this country for cannabis use or possession. The racial disparity in who was arrested is still very much intact. And this all goes back to, you know, it's kind of like a lingering hangover from, uh, you know, after, you know, the civil rights movement and the end of Jim Crow and finally, you know, uh, medical marijuana laws and cannabis legalization now in nine states. So, um, and, and medical marijuana laws in something like 30 states, there's still like this lingering hangover from the Anslinger era of, uh, you know, this ugly stigma, which is completely tied up with racism uh, around around the cannabis plant and, you know, completely tied up with, um, you know, fear of the underclass and, um, and the lower depths, uh, you know, completely reactionary, completely retrograde. And it's and even now, you know, that again, major industry is emerging around cannabis and even, you know, the Food and Drug Administration is actually, you know, now approved cannabinoid pharmaceutical products. Even after all of this, the stigma is still very much intact. And this is what really irks me, is that, you know, writing about cannabis, like I say, it's been my bread and butter. And to a certain extent, it's what I've done to, you know, sustain the other journalism, which I do about, you know, issues of war and peace, ecological survival, cultural survival for indigenous peoples, etc. But as you can see, cannabis is also a legitimate 
political concern, which is also very close to my heart. And, you know, when my friends who write for The Nation magazine have, you know, sort of, you know, turned their nose up and, um, and snickered at the fact that I've written for places like um, High Times and Cannabis Now, well, you know, I have zero patience for that attitude. For starters, again, another conversation. I'm not going to get into it. But The Nation magazine actually happens to have very bad politics. <laughs> But again, I've ranted about that on this podcast before. That's another convo. But, um, uh, you know, anytime that you engage in that kind of snickering, you are actually playing into the hands of the stigma and you make yourself complicit with the oppressive status quo, which continues to obtain in this country and in this world around the, you know, the systematic oppression of cannabis, cannabis use and cannabis users. With all again of the uh, you know class and racial baggage, um, and you know an ugly history, and I hesitate to use the word history because it's still very much alive, that you know informs it all today. Every time you know you engage in that kind of you know snickering about the 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 issue of cannabis as if it were not a legitimate political question, you are complicit with all of that. You are playing right into all of that, and uh, there are some ways that the you know that this this stigma has sort of been. Um, adapted to by the cannabis industry itself. For starters, um, you can see it in the law. The federal farm bill, which was signed by Donald Trump in the uh, the closing week of 2018, after having been pushed through by uh, Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, again, under pressure from farmers in his own state who want to grow hemp, uh, now actually legalizes the uh, the cultivation of hemp in the United States. And I should make clear, again, we'll talk a little bit more about the, um, the whole question of definitions, but under federal law, hemp is merely those varieties of cannabis which are grown for industrial purposes, which have a very low content, 0.3% THC, which is the... Um, the cannabinoid, which actually, quote-unquote, gets you high, the psychoactive cannabinoid, as opposed to CBD, the cannabinoid, which is now attracting all of this um, attention from the medical industry, uh, which is not psychoactive and does not get you high. So um, there's now, uh, in addition to, uh, to legalizing cultivation of hemp, the new farm bill also legalizes CBD, also actually legalizes the cannabinoid CBD, which, you know, the industry is very, very interested in now. You know, the pharmaceutical industry is very interested in and uh, medical industry generally. Um, but the law slices it so thin that um, it specifically says that only CBD, which is derived from hemp, is legal, not CBD, which is derived from quote-unquote marijuana. The law does not actually mention marijuana, but that's, that's, that's what they mean. You know, they're making it clear that only uh, CBD, which is derived from those strains of the cannabis sativa plant with 0.3% um, THC or less, only that CBD is legal. And um, CBD, which is derived from uh, what we call marijuana, those strains which have got above 0.3%. And really, if marijuana is going to get you high at all, it's got to have quite significantly above 0.3% THC. Uh, you know, that is still verboten. And this is absolutely 
ridiculous. This is caving in to the stigma and to, you know, the fear of um, THC and, you know, fear of, uh, you know, the, the, the mind-altering capacities or the mood-altering capacities, whatever you want to call it, of the cannabis plant. And, you know, and, and again, it's like a lingering hangover from the, uh, the Anslinger era when there was all this propaganda about, uh, you know, smoking pot would turn you into an axe murderer, which is not based in reality at all. It's entirely based in lies and propaganda. But nonetheless, you know, the, the fact that, the, uh, that the, the, the farm bill sliced the definition of CBD so thin is, uh, you know, a testament to, you know, that, that irrational stigma still being in place. And I will point out that this is actually, not only is it irrational and arbitrary, but it's counterproductive. Okay, it's irrational and arbitrary because in terms of the actual molecular makeup of the cannabinoid, CBD is CBD. It doesn't matter whether it's derived from a strain of the cannabis plant with less than 0.3% THC or more than 0.3% THC. It doesn't matter. In terms of, you know, the actual molecular makeup of the cannabinoid, it's exactly the same. What is different is that the strains which are low in THC also tend to be low in CBD. They're low in cannabinoids altogether. So um, generally, it requires a lot more hemp to create a certain quantity of CBD than it does marijuana. That is to say, strains of the plant which actually produce cannabinoids. We're talking exponentially more hemp than quote-unquote marijuana to produce the same quantity of CBD. This is a particular concern when the uh, the hemp is being imported. Maybe this is going to be less of a concern as an organic industry takes hold in places like Kentucky and Wisconsin. But uh, when the stuff you know, traditionally has been imported from places like China, where you know there isn't much in the way of environmental oversight, you know this raises concern about big concentrations of pesticides, you know, finding their way into your CBD product because of the uh, tremendous quantities of hemp which are uh, required to, um, to produce a certain amount of, of CBD. So there is actually a case to be made that CBD should be derived from marijuana rather than from hemp. And I will point out that the, uh, the California Health Department last year actually passed a regulation saying that uh, they will only recognize the legality under state law of CBD, which is derived from strains of cannabis, which have got high quantity of THC. In other words, not hemp-derived CBD. So now, California state regulations are completely at odds with federal law, with the federal law that was just passed with Donald Trump's signature on the farm bill just about uh, two weeks ago now. So this is an absurd contradiction. And another thing I will point out is that even the, the actual wording of the regulation in California, to my mind, gets the terminology wrong because it talks about cannabis-derived CBD as opposed to hemp-derived CBD. Now, this is completely nonsensical because hemp is cannabis. Now, this is a part of, you know, the industry has been wanting to move away from 
the term marijuana because the term marijuana is still associated with the stigma. And it's been repeatedly pointed out that the term marijuana came into widespread use during the Anslinger era. And that before that, you know, the uh, you know producers of tinctures and other medicinal preparations, which included cannabis, uh, which had been, you know, a thriving industry in the United States before Prohibition for, you know, treating, uh, you know, they can make cough medicine out of it, for treating insomnia, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if you look at the ingredients, they called it cannabis. They didn't call it marijuana. And, you know, it's been pointed out that a lot of the... Uh, the congressmen who voted to outlaw marijuana in 1937 didn't even understand what they were voting on because, uh, you know, all of the reefer madness propaganda emerging from Anslinger was um, referring to the stuff as marijuana. And people didn't even understand that it was actually cannabis. And, uh, and he, he particularly upplayed the term marijuana because guess what? It's a Mexican word. And it, uh, you know, sort of emphasized the association in the public mind of uh, cannabis use with Mexican immigrants. So completely tied up with racism and xenophobia. So uh, now in recognition of all of this, you know, the industry is starting to move away from the term marijuana and adopt the word cannabis. Now, to a certain extent, I go along with this. Generally, I think that, you know, I mean, actually Orwell makes this point in his um, essay, politics in the English language. You know, he writes that, you know, it's a part of the general um, pathology of the English language he perceived that, uh, you know, the, the scientific words for plants were coming into vogue and that, you know, the, the old-fashioned English words for flowers were, uh, were falling out of favor. And, you know, he protested this as a, as a pretension. And, you know, generally, I agree. But um, again, you know, the, the, wor the word marijuana has got so much political baggage um, associated with it that, you know, I too have generally in my journalism taken up the word cannabis. But there is a real danger in making the word marijuana verboten entirely because it erodes clarity and, um, and it opens up absurdity such as the California Health Department referring to, uh, you know, um, cannabis-derived CBD as opposed to hemp-derived CBD when hemp itself is a form of cannabis, okay? <laughs> so uh, I, I don't think that the word marijuana should be banished from the English language. Or if it is, then we have to come up with an alternative term because right now things are getting very muddied. You know, basically, hemp are those strains of the cannabis plant which have got less than 0.3% uh, THC, Marijuana are those strains which have got enough THC to produce a, um, a psychoactive effect, okay? But it's all cannabis, right? And, uh, you know, in fact, when, uh, you know, the industry has got, uh, you know, something invested in trying to, you know, obfuscate uh, the distinction here between cannabis and marijuana, not only because of the stigma associated with marijuana, but also because of factors such as that which I mentioned about, you know, the, the, the possible health impacts of, um, of cannabinoids, which are, which are derived from hemp. So uh, this distinction, it's an important, you know, uh, intellectual distinction here, which has got to be maintained, despite the fact that, you know, there's all this, um, this ugly baggage that goes along with the word marijuana. Uh, another problematic word is recreational. Um, you know, okay, when I went out to, um, to California 
the last time a few years back. And I interviewed some of the um, dispensary owners in the Bay Area. They told me that I could um, get a, um, uh, a doctor's recommendation and, uh, you know, walk out of their establishment with medical marijuana the next day. And I said, well, uh, I'm not a resident of California. I'm a resident of New York. Well, that doesn't matter. It's a California law. Okay, totally legitimate. I'm on California soil. California law applies, not New York law. Then I said, well, I don't think of myself as a medical user. I don't have glaucoma. I don't have epilepsy. You know, am I a medical user? And uh, I was asked, well, what do you use it for? And I said, well, you know, I like to, uh, when I'm going to be doing my, uh, my writing late at night, and I really want to sink in and concentrate on my work, uh, you know, I'll, um, I'll talk a little bit because it kind of gets the creative juices flowing. And I was told, okay, you're using it to treat your writer's block. That's a legitimate medicinal use. You can get a doctor's recommendation. You know, I have to recognize that they have a point there. Now, I also think that there's certain abuses to this argument because, you know, when Proposition 215 was passed back in, um, uh, what was it, 1996, people weren't talking about writer's block, okay? People were talking about AIDS and the wasting syndrome and, uh, you know, cancer sufferers who, uh, you know, couldn't eat because of chemotherapy. <laughs> so, you know, there is a certain danger, I will acknowledge, in um, dumbing down the, uh, the definition of medical marijuana. And another, by the way, irony of legal marijuana is that, you know, political space and legal space began to open for, um, for cannabis in California way back in the 1990s under the rubric of what was called compassionate care. And the notion that, uh, you know, okay, people who were suffering from the AIDS wasting syndrome, people who can't keep down food because of chemotherapy, you know, it's a matter of their survival and a matter of their fundamental human rights that they should have access to, to cannabis. And now, ironically, under the legal cannabis regulations, which are in place in California, there's no place for compassionate care. All cannabis is being taxed. And uh, even the people who are, uh, you know, trying to make it available for free to, um, to medicinal users are being taxed at the, ex the same extremely high rate as, um, uh, again, you know, producers of so-called recreational cannabis for, uh, you know, uh, using economies of scale. So um, there, there are actually, uh, you know, compassionate care providers um, in the Bay Area and so on who have um, been complaining that, you know, they're, uh, they, they can no longer afford to make the stuff available for free or for very cheap to people who really, really need it urgently for their health. And they've actually been prevailing upon some of the, uh, the big growers to make the stuff available for free for um, uh, compassionate care providers. And some of the big growers, to their credit, have responded. But nonetheless, this is a real contradiction in the law. And this is a, um, another example of, uh, you know, the dystopian way uh, or a dystopian aspect to how legalized cannabis has actually unfolded in the state of California. And, um, and it also, once again, gets back to, uh, you know, the, um, the problem with, the, with, the, with maintaining this rigid distinction between so-called medicinal use and so-called recreational use. All right, now, again, I don't depend on cannabis for my life the way somebody who, um, you know, is suffering from the wasting syndrome does. But nonetheless, I think that you can make a legitimate case that I'm using it for purposes which by certain definitions or certain stretches of the imagination 
could legitimately be considered medical purposes. So I think that we have to view it as a spectrum from, on one hand, use which is strictly medicinal, somebody who's smoking this stuff as a literally an urgent matter of life and death in order to keep down food, and, you know, people who are, uh, you know, just getting high at a, at, a, at a concert or a party, using it completely for what can be considered social or recreational use. Okay, there's a big spectrum in between. And I would argue that, uh, you know, so-called um, spiritual use or um, sacramental use, which has now been legalized for Rastafarians in Jamaica, also falls somewhere along that spectrum. So uh, in any event, you know, this all gets back to the question of the stigma. The reason these rigid definitions between recreational and medical are in place and the rigid, you know, distinction between hemp and marijuana is in place, it all gets back to the stigma. And I have a fear that, uh, you know, by by playing into this, we are um, loaning legitimacy to the stigma. And as much as I myself in my in my writing and in my discourse have moved away from the term marijuana and started to use the word cannabis more and more, I also recognize that, you know, maybe there's a downside to this. And maybe you are actually playing into the hands of or loaning legitimacy to, you know, that old Angslinger era of, you know, association of marijuana with Mexican immigrants. And maybe you are actually, you know, in some ways loaning credence to racism, and continuing to stigmatize the term marijuana. And maybe there's something to be said for, uh, you know, uh, say it loud. I use marijuana and I'm proud. Anyway, basically what all of this means is that, uh, just to wrap it up here, is that the liberation of cannabis is a critical political issue. It's not just about white boys getting high. It's an issue which is critically related to fundamental questions of social and racial justice in the United States and around the world. Survival for peasant peoples and small farmers from Southeast Asia to South Africa to South America, and the right to self-medication. And I think that we should be demanding a right to herbaceous cannabis, the right to smoke bud and not merely to rely on extracts and pharmaceutical products. And I think that a part of what, uh, you know, has been holding back liberation of the cannabis plant is that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is afraid of people being able to self-medicate with a plant that anybody can grow in a windowsill flower box. You know, and I recognize there's a downside to smoking. Inhaling smoke into your lungs is always, you know, carries health risks. That said, there has never been any statistical link between cannabis use and lung cancer. In fact, it's been demonstrated that, in fact, there are anti-cancerous properties to the, uh, the cannabis plant itself. There's actually a, um, a patent which is held by the Federal Department of Health and Human Services for um, anti-cancer properties of the cannabis plant. At the same time that the, uh, the federal government, and particularly the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, which has responsibility for the scheduling of marijuana, has been uh, you know, insisting that it should remain in Schedule 1 and other utter abject contradiction of, you know, the actual federal bureaucracy itself. But an upside to the, um, to the use of herbaceous cannabis is that you can control the dosage minutely. You can smoke exactly enough to get you to exactly the state that you want to be in. 
Whereas, you know, some of the, um, the pharmaceutical products which have been uh, produced, such as Marinol, which actually is a pharmaceutical synthetic, which mimics the properties of THC, which has been actually, you know, uh, used for prescription for um, people who are suffering from the wasting syndrome or people who are experiencing nausea from chemotherapy. Um, and one of the, um, the downsides, which patients have complained about Marinol, is that it gets you too stoned. That <laughs> it has an incapacitating overkill effect. Whereas, uh, you know, you don't get that from, from smoking it. You can get, you know, just high enough, as it were, to relieve your nausea without getting so high that, uh, you know, uh, you can't think straight. So, uh, you know, that's a real irony because of the... Um, the stigma, which goes along with getting high, quote unquote, they've actually produced a um, a product which gets you too high. I mean, it's so out of whack. It's so utterly, utterly, utterly out of whack. So, um, you know, the last thing I want to say is that uh, once again, I do think that we're in a very, very exciting and promising time right now for the cannabis plant. I think that the stigma is eroding and that we have to build on that. I think the people who are more and more coming to recognize that the issue of cannabis is actually a serious political issue with um, big implications for human freedom generally, for human rights, for ecological survival, for all the other stuff that we're, that we're concerned about. People are finally beginning to realize this, and this is a good thing, and we should build on this. But that inevitably, because we live under the capitalist system, any progress opens up a new set of contradictions which we have to continue to grapple with. I think that we have to understand this. I think that we have to develop what could be called a Hegelian approach to cannabis liberation and develop a sense of cannabis dialectics and understand that, uh, you know, there's a certain sense of paradoxical unity of opposites, as Hegel called it, which is in play here, where um, for every advance, there are also new contradictions which uh, are going to open up, which have to be grappled with and struggled with. And um, I think that we, in, in our um, attitude towards a liberation of the cannabis plant, we have to um, adopt an attitude not of looking to legalization as a panacea, which is going to uh, you know make everybody happy in one fell swoop, but a, adopt a position of permanent struggle. And uh, understand that as long as we live under capitalism, the same, uh, you know, contradictions which uh, we face in, in production of corn or any other crop with, you know, control by agribusiness, privatization of the genetic commons, small farmers being pushed out by economies of scale. All of that is also going to be something that we are going to have to um, confront as cannabis is legalized as well and that we have to adopt a position of permanent struggle to free cannabis. This has been uh, The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Uh, check out our website and tell me what you think, countervortex.org. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another podcast. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and we're going to go out once again with La Cucaracha. <laughs>
es Pancho Villa sin camisa. Y se van los carancistas, porque vienen los viistas. Necesito bicicleta para hacer la caminata al lugar donde mando. La convención zapata, la cucaracha, la cucaracha. Ya no puede caminar porque no tiene, porque le falta. Marihuana por fumar, la cucaracha, la cucaracha. Ya no puede caminar porque no tiene, porque le falta. Marihuana por fumar, marihuana por fumar, marihuana por fumar. Marijuana por fumar, marijuana por fumar, marijuana por fumar, marijuana por fumar, marijuana por fumar. Gracias, buenas noches y viva la revolución.